0: Our scripture reading is in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. These are the last words of the Gospel of Matthew after the account of the resurrection of Christ. This evening we begin a two-part study of the doctrine of the Trinity, And so we read this for the sake of the uh, baptismal words that Jesus gives. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the ways in which we can learn from the history of the church and the ways that your people have confessed their faith in response to your word. And so we thank you for this work that you have given us to do together of studying the ancient doctrines of the Christian faith. We pray that you would cause this to be for us an experience of responding to your word, of being rooted more deeply in what we confess in response to your word and an experience of fellowship together with your church down through the ages. For all of this to be fruitful in our midst, it must be the work of your Holy Spirit among us. And so we seek that in prayer as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession is Article 8. This article looks a little bit lengthy. It's very much a simply a basic summary of the doctrine of the Trinity. Everything it says really is expressed in the first sentence, and much of the interesting—well, uh, okay, it's all interesting—but much of the more interesting things in the study of the Trinity that we're going to get are going to be next week when Brennan gets to do Article Nine, emphasizing especially the Old Testament rootedness of this confession. And so, I would encourage you to hear these words simply as a very basic summary of this doctrine. God has spoken to us in His Word. This is our confession of faith in response to God's Word. Article 8 of the Confession. Let us say together, In keeping with this truth and Word of God, we believe in one God who is one single essence, in whom there are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct, according to their incommunicable properties, namely, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. The Son is the Word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might, proceeding from the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, this distinction does not divide God into three, since Scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit Each has his own subsistence, distinguished by characteristics, yet in such a way that these three persons are only one God. It is evident, then, that the Father is not the Son, and that the Son is not the Father, and that likewise the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Nevertheless, these persons, thus distinct are neither divided nor fused or mixed together. For the Father did not take on flesh, nor did the Spirit, but only the Son. The Father was never without His Son, nor without His Holy Spirit, since all these are equal from eternity in one and the same essence. There is neither a first nor a last, for all three are one in truth and power, in goodness and mercy. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, with our uh, introduction this evening, I want to begin by answering the question, as we often do, of why we are doing this work of gathering together a second time each Lord's Day to study these doctrines of the Christian faith. Number one on your outline, we study the confessions as a rhythm or habit by which we are continuously rooted in the shared faith of the church of Jesus Christ. This is something I want to emphasize for us this evening as we come to the doctrine of the Trinity, that this is meant to feel like something of a habit. You ought to have the feeling over the years of, oh, here we are again at the doctrine of the Trinity. We have two worship services. The morning service is our service that we would call covenant renewal, our communion service. And in that service, our ordinary practice is to work through books of the Bible, to work through diverse portions of scripture, whether it be Old Testament narrative or the letters of Paul or the Gospels. It is our custom as a Reformed church to gather a second time with the purpose of this, not first of all being, let's have a second worship service. That's not the origin of this. Rather, the origin is we ought to gather together to study the confessions, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession. And a second worship service is a way to do that. This comes to us then as a tradition, a practice that says you want to be working through the same material over and over, the catechism, the confession. And so that sense of here we are again at something we have studied before is part of the point. And I don't want to apologize for this, but I do think it's helpful to explain that this is purposeful and intentional. It's part of the wisdom we receive from those who have come before us. And so, both our catechism and the Belgic Confession teach us to, on a regular basis, repeatedly be reoriented to the basics of what we confess together. The doctrine of the Trinity is one of the doctrines that most distinguishes the Christian faith from all other confessions of, of who God is. The doctrine of the Trinity is one of those that most distinguishes us from the errors of of the cults and those who have spun off from the Christian faith in rebellion against God's Word. And it is one of those doctrines that is most lost when the church neglects the practice of being rooted in the historic confessions of the church. When we are confessing the Trinity in our Reformed confessions... Our Reformed confessions are very careful to confess it in a way that reflects the creeds, the ancient creeds of the Christian faith. And so this is a way that we are being rooted and grounded in the Christian faith, not in a distinctly Reformed way, but in terms of that which we share with all Christian churches. And moreover, we live in a time when many of the cults, for example, are trying to present themselves as being evangelical are trying to present themselves as basically being Christian. And that is happening at a time where the Christian church in America has gone for centuries, it seems, without truly loving and embracing our rootedness in the historic doctrines of the church. And that is a very dangerous combination. A time where we are not being equipped with these basics as a habit as a rhythm over and over, is the very time when so many who do not confess the Trinity are trying to speak as though, what difference does it make? We're all Christians in the same way. And so we need this habit, this rhythm, precisely as a habit to stay rooted in that shared faith. So this morning, we come to the Trinity in particular. And as I said, I want to emphasize how this first sentence is very much the core confession of the doctrine. "...in keeping with this truth and the word of God, we believe in one God, who is one single essence, in whom there are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct, according to their incommunicable properties." And that simply means the properties they don't share with each other, namely, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this is going to be a two-part time in the Trinity. This evening may feel a bit like an introduction, But that also is purposeful. One of the things I want to spend some time on is the posture we ought to have as we discuss this doctrine. What our attitude ought to be, how it ought to feel to us to be talking about this. Even just the words we confessed in this small summary can make it feel like something that on the one hand is insurmountable to figure out, Or, on the other hand, as you grow in understanding it and loving it, being tempted by a kind of pride. We have it figured out, and that's how we know we have it all right. Both of those are a danger. There's a danger of throwing up our hands and saying, this is impossible, why even bother trying? And there's a danger of saying, and we have legitimately grown, relating to it as something that everyone has to figure out, else they don't have access to God. You've got to have this all totally right in your mind. Well, how do we resolve that? Number two, posture matters. And here we have a typo that I don't even know how to begin to explain. I suppose it could have been worse. But here we go. We must discuss all Christian doctrines and the doctrine of the Trinity in particular So there, I guess you have an extra blank to fill in. We must discuss all Christian doctrines and the doctrine of the Trinity in particular with a posture of humility. A posture of humility. And I want to give you three ways to think about this, this being the case. In number three, I'm going to give you a summary of the doctrine. Number four is just a brief conclusion. We're not going to have a lot of time there. Number three will be a summary of the doctrine. Before we get there, though, a posture of humility. I want to give you three ways to think of this. How is what we are doing humble in a way that avoids both throwing up our hands and saying, this is all impossible, why try? And avoids saying, I've got it figured out and that's what really matters. Letter A. We are, in all that we are doing, calling upon the name of the Lord And I want to say this as emphasizing this posture of humility. What we are seeking to do and to do faithfully is to call upon the name of the Lord. To have a sense of we cannot explain life. There is so much we cannot account for on our own. That we are needy, that we are weak. And what we are gathered here to do together in worship, what our posture ought to be be as human beings, and what we are doing as we seek to grow doctrinally is calling upon the Lord's name. I'm taking these words from Genesis 4, verse 26. And that means that actually the word Lord there should be in all caps or small caps. To indicate the word Lord here is not simply uh, the word for someone being a Lord, as in being the boss, being in charge, having power. This is the word "the Lord, meaning Yahweh, the Jehovah, the name of God. His I am who I am, the self-existent one. We read at the end of chapter 4 of Genesis, which is after the story of Cain and Abel, after we are told that Adam and Eve are given their son Seth, and Eve gives her expression of faith, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. That uh, verse 26 ends with these words. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, what I want to emphasize here is the humility of that calling upon. that This is not a result of having theology all figured out, having every doctrine figured out. Trinity has not been fully revealed at this point. There's no way they had in their minds the fullness of the doctrine the way we do now. And yet this is being stated as a good that people are calling upon the name of the Lord. And what we want to be doing, no matter how much we grow in theology, how much we grow in understanding the Trinity, is remembering at the heart of it, this is what we are doing. And the reason I wanted to point out, this is the all-caps word, Lord, is that this is before God has revealed his name as being the Lord, as being Yahweh, I am. That happens at the story of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. That hasn't happened yet. He's not revealed that name. And yet, the writer of Genesis, Moses, says that at this time, when people are calling out to, well, they must not have been saying the Lord, it wasn't revealed, they're calling out to the creator. They're calling out to the one who is the ground of being, the self-existent one, the one who is the reason we are here. Moses is saying that their calling out to him is in some way a calling upon the name of the Lord. That there is a calling out to God that is happening before they fully understand that is not determined by having their theology all right. And we must remember that we always come to God with that posture. It's not our ability to master things, first of all. It is rather humbly calling out to Him. Next, letter B Our goal in that is worship. Our goal in all of this is worship. Our goal is not to be better than others. Our goal is not to, you know, be the cool one who can win all of the arguments because, yes, that makes you cool. Our goal is not to simply be able to beat others over the head with our knowledge. What is the goal at all times in all of this? Both the reason we may not throw up our hands and say, who cares? And the reason we must not say we build our way to God by figuring everything out. The reason we do neither of those is because the goal is worship. I love the moment, I think we spent a whole sermon on these couple verses in Ephesians chapter 3. I love the moment where Paul in all of his theological discussion arrives at these words. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That where all that theology led to was that expression of worship, being oriented faithfully to our Creator. And that ought to be our goal as well. I've been struck recently, this isn't a new thing, but struck recently by how so often in theological writings about the Trinity in particular, Herman Bovink does this, and more contemporary writers that I've been reading do this, the church fathers do this, they will constantly intersperse expressions of praise. To Him be the glory forever. Because there's this sense when you're discussing Trinity that we are beyond our full comprehension. And we ought to throughout all of it, as at any other time, have that posture simply of receiving. And that the goal in receiving what God reveals is then to worship. Letter C. Remember, what are we doing here? I'm describing three different ways to describe this posture of humility as we study these things. Let Letter see. We are speaking in response to what we have experienced and received as a gift of God's grace. I skipped... No, I did not. Okay, great. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. That was originally going to be our scripture reading, so I just had a moment of panic that I forgot to do the scripture reading, but no, we read Matthew 28 all as well. The other possible scripture reading, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. I want to read these words. This passage could be used together with many in the New Testament as a kind of proof text for the doctrine of the Trinity. Here, Paul intertwines together the work of God, the sending of the Son, the Spirit, the Spirit being the Spirit of the Son by whom by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And so there is this unity of the works of Father, Son, and Spirit, all being said by Paul as a Jewish Hebrew theologian, expressing the oneness of God as being expressed in this Trinity. Trinity situated within that oneness of God. All of that is embedded here. But the reason we read it at this point is that Paul describes it, first of all, as something you have experienced crying out to God as Father. And this thing being experienced, being made possible by being adopted in Christ as God's Son, and by the Holy Spirit causing Christ to then indwell us, that God is in us, enabling us to cry out, Father. That it is, first of all, known, experienced, as God by His Spirit works in our hearts, uniting us to His Son, and that the work of theology then, especially I'm applying it here in the Doctrine of the Trinity, but also elsewhere. The work of theology is the work of describing that thing that is happening. How is this a posture of humility? Well, at every point, beginning, middle, and end, it is something you are receiving. Something you are humbly receiving. And so, your access to God, your question of whether or not you are receiving this, is not something you accomplish by figuring all the theology out. It is something you are receiving humbly, and the theology is describing it. All of that is why then, number three, I want to set before you an example of describing the doctrine of the Trinity that begins with baptism. Summarizing here first what I've already been saying through those points, our experience of the Trinity is before our formulation of the doctrine. Two ways in which we can describe this being the case before I get to letter A. You've been baptized. Some of you have been baptized as very small children, maybe infants. You don't remember. You've grown up knowing you are baptized into the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity, in that sense, is your earliest experience. Others of us have been baptized older, as converts to the Christian faith or as professing believers. But in that as well, our experience of Trinity is prior because all of that is only possible because of what God has done for us in Christ and by his creating faith in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And so baptism stands as the testimony to each of us, whether we were baptized as adults or as children, though those who were baptized as children illustrate most clearly what it is for all of us. What we have all experienced is the Trinity being who God is for us, and our formulation, our description of it coming after, coming later. Now, for this, I am following the approach of Scott Swain in his wonderful little book on the Trinity called The Trinity An Introduction. Now, of course, everything I do in sermons is heavily dependent upon others that I am reading. That's the nature of what ministers do. But in this case, this very structure is coming from him. And so I want to make sure uh, to give that credit and also uh, to recommend that book if you want to go deeper. I am giving merely an introductory outline here. Remember, the words of baptism from Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're gonna, I'm going to go into this for a few moments here doctrinally, but what's the point? This is, first of all, something we've received and experienced that we are now describing scripturally. The words, in the name. The word name is singular. And so this echoes the language of the Old Testament that the scriptures always speak of the Trinity in a way that situates it within the affirmation, especially in the Old Testament, though just as clearly in the New, of the one God of Israel. The word name in the baptismal formula is singular almost certainly echoing the language of the Old Testament of the name of God, being Yahweh, I am, the self-existent one, that God is one in number, that there is only one who is God, who is the self-existent being, that he is one by way what we call simplicity, that he is all of his attributes. They are not parts of him, but all that is in God is God, that all that he is, he is in his totality, that he is the overflowing fount of being, he is the fullness of being. Well, that oneness of God is expressed in this formula that will then go on to speak of Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinity is always situated within that confession that God is one. And remember, the oneness of God does not mean everything, nothing that the pagans worship really exists. The pagan gods could quite possibly exist demonically, but the point is that they are not God in the way that God is God. They are, not, they, they are creatures who have rebelled against God. God is the creator. That is the oneness of God. Letter B, the formula goes on. The name of. Now, the word name, word name is singular. But the name of then speaks of Father, Son, and Spirit. Going on for filling in the blank there. The Scriptures identify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with the one God of Israel. Under letter A, we might highlight the language of the Belgic Confession. We believe in one God. Here we emphasize who is one single essence. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are identified with that one God. They are all three the one name. The name of Israel's God. Being identified with that one God does not mean that they are instantiations of Godness. So what do we mean? Well, we could say there is one humanity and three persons. Right? Uh, Pick any three of you. All right? So there's one humanity, three persons, Joby, Hannah, and Brennan. That's not what we're saying when we're saying one God, three persons. We're saying one instantiation of godness, one essence, as the language says, the Belgian Confession says, who is one single essence, in whom there are three persons. Those three names, Father, Son, and Spirit, both are the name of the one God of Israel. In other words, in the very basic confession, there are not three gods, but one God. Letter C, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit We can summarize in this way. The scriptures distinguish the persons by way of their relations to each other. They are distinguished by their relations to one another. Father and Son. Father, Son as the ones from whom the Spirit proceeds. That is what the confession calls their incommunicable properties. But it is the one God of Israel It is the one God of Israel who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit. This confession that you could go endlessly deep in exploring, endlessly deep in working out the reasonableness of it, and the beauty of it, and the glory of it, can all be summarized in this way A, there is one God. B, the scriptures identify the Father, Son, and Spirit as that one God of Israel and see, those three persons are distinct from each other by way of their relations. The Father is the Father of the Son, the Son is the Son of the Father, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That is the doctrine in its simplest form, or as our catechism says, this one eternal God exists in three distinct persons. Now, you all know, you could go further and further in exploring just what all of that means, how to defend it against errors. We're not talking about tritheism, three gods, but at the same time, neither are these merely revealing modes of God. They're rather how God exists eternally, and we can go further and further in that. But all of this is the confession of how that one God, present with us by His Son, indwelling us by His Spirit, has drawn us to Himself, His Actions in salvation, actions in creation, making himself known to us. And we seek to confess that one faith then in that way, echoing, rooted in the confession of the Christian faith through the centuries. Number, Or in other words, number four, the detailed doctrinal formulations of the doctrine of the Trinity are intended to express and defend this shared Christian faith because these things all matter. The existence of the one God, the creator of heaven and earth and everything in them. The divinity of Christ as Emmanuel, God with us. And finally, the presence of God with us in the Holy Spirit. All of those truths being what all of our formulations of the doctrine of the Trinity are intended to protect. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we seek with humility to receive what you have revealed to us in your word. We praise you for your eternal glory as one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We praise you as our creator. We praise you for the work of redemption you have done for us in Christ. We praise you for your presence with us by your spirit. And we ask you to help us to remain rooted in these things for your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.